This is the Hearts and Minds podcast, conversations about investing and impact. Welcome back to another episode of the Hearts and Minds podcast. I'm Maggie O'Neill, Head of Marketing and Operations. Thank you for joining us today. Hearts and Minds Investments is a unique ASX-listed investment company which has two objectives, to maximise long-term returns to shareholders while also providing vital financial support to leading medical research institutes. There are so many brilliant individuals that help us by donating their time, their expertise, and their intellectual property. In this podcast series, we're bringing you in on meaningful conversations on impact and investing to discover more about the incredible people in the Hearts and Minds ecosystem. Today, it's my pleasure to be joined by Chief Investment Officer, Charlie Lanchester. Hey, how are you? Hi, Maggie. It's great to be back. I'm actually really enjoying this series of podcasts, and it's a great way to really learn more about our our managers that work for Hearts and Minds. Yeah, definitely. And today's guest is none other than Aussie Hall of Famer, Peter Cooper, founder and chief investment officer of Cooper Investors. Peter has been a founding supporter of Hearts and Minds and a big advocate of not only our model, but also the philanthropic purpose, fully engaging in all aspects of Hearts and Minds. Yeah, look, it's a great honour to sit down with with Peter. He's a bit of a legend of the industry. Uh, So it was wonderful to spend all that time with him today. Yeah, really fascinating to hear how he approaches not only investing, but understanding his overarching life principles too. He's definitely a deep thinker. And I think that really came Mm. across in our conversation, Um, not only around his investment process and the way he looks at stock picking, but also how he runs his business, the business of funds management. I thought it was fascinating when he was talking about how he structures that business. Yeah, and a little bit different in this conversation as we cover the differences, it is being a core fund manager versus being a conference fund manager, which hopefully gives listeners a bit more colour into how the portfolio is constructed because they're quite a different way of investing or thinking about the stock recommendation. It's great that we're able to talk about that in depth today so that people understand it better. There's a lot of responsibility that sits with our seven core managers, but in some ways their task is a little easier in that we're taking their three highest conviction Mm. picks from their own portfolios and investing them in the hearts and minds portfolio. But those stocks are for the long term and we can change it at any time and it's managed on a longer term basis, unlike the conference portfolio where a stock goes in for a year and there needs to be a catalyst for something to actually happen. Yeah, quite a different way of approaching it, that's for sure. Well, let's jump into it. Welcome, Peter Cooper of Cooper Investors. Thank you very much for your time today and thank you for being a core supporter of Hearts and Minds since the beginning. Your input has been incredibly valuable. So maybe taking a step back and looking at your career from the start, I think you know many people will not know how you got to be the storied fund manager that you are today. You know, how did it all begin? Well, Charlie, I, um, I was a bit of a late starter in, in the investment management game, if you like, and uh, came back from backpacking essentially around the world and a couple of jobs in London, considering my, my future and ended up getting a job at the State Super Board New South Wales as a junior analyst. But I always had a I had an interest in investing, came from my family, we were in small business, um, dad investing in mining stocks and had a great, I guess, interest in investing and not specifically the public markets, you know, sort of worked in property a little bit and, uh, but anyway, the, the job at State Super Board was my kind of really big uh, entry into the into the field of investing and you know had a career across three different international organizations Bank National de Paris then moved down to Melbourne to join Potter Warburg Asset Management which was taken over by Mercury Asset Management the large UK investor and they in turn were taken over by Merrill Lynch. Merrill's were then in turn taken over by BlackRock and the rest is history there but I had the three 
experiences in global organisations, which are very meaningful to me because, like to say, I had the you know had the like that joke had the French experience, then the English experience, and then the American experience, and so lots of terrific learnings and experiences. Not all good, but you know, as they say, all challenges lead to growth. And in two thousand and one. You know, I decided to leave Merrill Lynch and start Cooper Investors in in partnership, actually, in joint venture with David Paradise, which some of your viewers would know. And the reason for starting the company Cooper Investors was really to distill a, I guess, a, a wide range of different experiences in different organisations and distill the the essence of what I, I believed in and you know, what resonated with me. And the key point was within a controlled environment called, you know, a private unlisted company. Within about three months of making the decision to move on and start up Cooper Investors, of course, we had the uh, September 11. And um, before our first client had arrived, we had this, what seemed at the time, an incredibly profound event that shocked the world and shocked me as a startup business without any customers. So, yeah, it was uh, quite a quite an interesting uh, stressor, if you like, in, in, in a startup situation. And But like all, all these kind of negative events, and not to be morbid about it, they kind of create the opportunities from an investment perspective. And so, you know, whilst the first, certainly the first 18 months was very challenging as a startup business, it was met with opportunities as a result of that global market downturn. Yeah, and I think there's a certain type of person that can handle the pressure of managing other people's money and it's a huge responsibility. Do you remember when you were first given a portfolio to manage, you know, when you made that step from being an analyst looking at stocks to uh, actually running other people's money? I can, Charlie. Thanks for the question. It brings back quite bad memories a long time ago. But it was I left I was kind of a deputy portfolio manager in the public service. I, I'm very grateful, by the way, of that, that period at State Superboard in New South Wales. It gave me great, great opportunity to develop myself, I guess, in terms of some of the beliefs. But I joined Bank National de Paris, had a $20 million portfolio that was, I was given as the Australian Equities Manager. And I left the public servants for the opportunity to be a portfolio manager in my own, own right. And so I was both excited and extremely nervous, actually, because I'd never really run a, a complete portfolio. So this was the first time. And there was a privatisation called Tabcorp, and I was living in Sydney at the time, didn't really know that much about Victorian politics. And I was early on in my time at Bank National Paris, and there was probably three or four other people in the team and fixed interest department and so forth. And But it was a very tightly knit group of people. And... I went along to a, uh, a broker lunch just before the IPO, a guy called Ross Wilson, the new CEO. Ross was, for those who remember, from Southcorp and Elder's uh, IXL L sort of pedigree. And he, he sat at this broker lunch where I was there with a number of other fund managers. And uh, Ross, I can just only remember one thing. He said, I have never seen a business like this where you spend capital and you get paid you know, all your capital back in seven months. You know, there's massive political debate about the licence and Labor and Liberal were fighting over this privatisation. It was a very big kind of controversial event to float this Victorian asset. And um, there's the broking community and the research and fund management community very split on whether this was a, a good business or a bad business. 
And so the reason I recount that story, I sort of got back and announced, well, we're going to take a pretty decent position in this thing. There was a lot of kind of angst and disagreement in the general organisation. And then when it came on, uh, I think it was floated at about $2.25 from memory per share. And it came on at about $2.18 and everyone's got their hair on fire. It's a disaster. And so it was, a, it was a bit of a tough beginning is what I'm trying to tell you, Charlie. <laughs> but, you know, it was, I guess, you know, symptomatic of markets. There's always two sides to every story. And in the end, the... Uh, you know, the stock market is, is a kind of adjudicator of who's right and who's wrong. And, you know, that turned into a four-bagger. So no regrets from my perspective there. But a good reminder of, you know, there's just many perspectives and many ways to make money and look at asset pricing. And from that day, I really took out the, you know, it's so important to have a philosophy. You can debate the rights and wrongs of that, you know, growth or value or GARP or um, top-down, bottom-up. There's many ways to make a buck. But... You know, the importance of actually understanding one's own philosophy, what works, when it works, when it doesn't work, you know, to build up the resilience and the, the fortitude to withstand the million and one distractions in this business. And it ain't easy, so to speak, to kind of sort out well, what's, what's relevant information and what's just noise sorting the signal from the noise is what we try to do. Absolutely. And there are so many different types of fund managers out there these days. But, you know, maybe taking a, taking a step back before we get into your philosophy, what is it that really draws you to fund management? You know, is it the scorecard, the competition, the curiosity about lots of different businesses or, or you know, the contentment of building a very successful private business and, you know, having all those people uh, around you do well alongside you? What is the favourite part of the job for you? I was really attracted to the industry for the, I guess, the challenge and not to make money per se. I mean, that's a very kind of crude motivator for clients and obviously a fundamental objective for what we do. I mean, before I actually got into the investment game in terms of uh, equity investments, my family were, were quite interested in racehorses and racing and betting systems and so forth and you know throughout college you know a calculated method based way I spent quite a lot of time in that you know just personally in that that space I guess the systemization and codification of factors that make you know sort of odds betting on horses you know looking at what's favorable and what's bad odds was just incredibly I had a deep curiosity around around that and, you know, I'd say the same curiosity has actually gone even further in terms of, you know, asset pricing and the factors that you feed into a, an equation or a kind of a model or a, a way of investing, both qualitative and quantitative, by the way. So I think there's a lot of what you call intangible factors. So that curiosity has stayed with me. And continues on, you know, like it's just it's like an onion. You just keep on peeling the onion layers back and there's more ways to kind of think about how to evaluate information, you know, reject the 95% of information, it's just noise or priced and, and try to isolate factors and information that can give one the uh, opportunity to add, add value. So that's one aspect of it and I think a very, very important aspect. In terms of the name of the company, it's Cooper Investors and the most important bit is the investors bit. And I feel that, you know, I have a Puritan streak in me. I sort of like the idea of 
this organisation being, you know, very obviously focusing on investment returns and making money. We, we call it risk-adjusted value latency. Um, and so the investor philosophy of the company, the way we run the company, the culture of the organisation is all aimed at optimising, you know, investment returns. The other thing that really, really stimulates me is, in fact, people in, in the and I'm not, a, I'm not really a people person, Charlie. I'll probably leave it to others to judge for that. But I'm not an extrovert who loves going to parties, quite the opposite. And so, but I am fascinated by humans and, and the way they love to organise themselves and in, in investing in companies. I mean, it's just having now been in CI for 22 years, my admiration for people that can lead and manage organisations, whether it's a sporting team or a you know, a, a business or a public company just keeps on going up because it's very difficult to do, number one, and it's even more difficult to keep it going. So, you know, 5, 10, 20, 30, 50 years, you know, the list, like a hurdle race, you know, each hurdle just seems to take out another, you know, generation of fund managers or organisations. So having enduring culture, enduring investment philosophy is is a fascination of mine and it really gets me out of bed from the perspective, yes, I've been doing it a long time, but it seems so fresh and new and the challenge is, is, is really there. And I think, you know, I guess I've refined my, call me a slow learner here, Charlie, but it's taken a long while to, you know, go from on, on day one, which was just two people, Andrew Swan and I running around with not really knowing how to run a business, you had to run a portfolio, but, you know, like putting that together, you know, was incredibly um, intense you know, journey. So I think that um, I guess that idea of enduring qualities is the thing that really fascinates me and the just endless journey in commerce and industry at solving problems and creating opportunities out of those problems is something that I really admire about capitalism and business enterprise and entrepreneurship. Yeah. And I, look, I, I did listen to some of the other work that you've you've got out there on the internet in preparation for this podcast, and it seemed to me listening to you um, talk about your firm and the culture of Cooper Investors that humility and uh, and I think hard work as well the sort of two things that shone through. Would you agree that that they are sort of a, a key part of your ethos? And and you know how do you go about instilling that in the troops across your firm? Yeah, well, we use the term culture of humility. At- at CI a lot. It's, it's embedded in the language. It's embedded in, you know, our reviews of our portfolios, you know, having that intellectual, I guess, uh, humility to be open, honest, being very present is another very significant, I think, um, attribute that sits behind humility. And I think it's important to note the word humility is sometimes, I think, um, defined as deference and you know, the Bible, I think, talks about meek and mildness. That's not our definition. You know, humility is fierce. It's not easy to be humble. You know, I think people confuse, you know, that sort of overly deferent demeanour. Sometimes to mean humility, we don't mean that. It's really just that intellectual honesty, I guess, uh, you know, self-awareness is just an incredibly important thing. And the, the first thing to say about self-awareness, you never quite get there. Well, if, if you do, you're <laughs> probably deluded. And so that journey of, you know, understanding self underpins the idea of 
to me confidence, another confusing word because underconfidence in my view is as bad as overconfidence. The, the overconfidence kind of get the front page of the financial review, the disasters, the hubris activities, that's not good. But underconfidence as well is in the investing game an issue because pulling the trigger or, you know, when opportunities come along, one has to, you know, have the, the courage of their convictions to kind of meet that intersection between preparation and opportunity, as, as they say. So the word humility has got a lot of attributes to it. Curiosity as well. I think in, in, in and around business, enterprise and, and industry and people, understanding and being open to information and observant to changing information. So, you know, as in all things in life, they're all temporary in the end. So everything's a cyclical in my view. It's just a matter of how, how long that cycle, including humans and fund managers and management teams, etc., and so just being observant to changes and the, and the curiosity to ask the second and third derivative as to what people have said when we're interviewing companies, of which we do 1,500 plus a year, you know, one-on-one dialogues with people in very informal and formal kind of settings. We prefer the informal, you know, more relaxed atmosphere, but there's always hints and clues to things that are changing in companies or why people admit things in their conversations is also very interesting. So I think that that level of, I guess, humility and self-awareness makes you acutely aware of the information and, I guess, trajectory of trends in industry or in company dynamics. So, yeah, I, I, I mean, I would put it right at the top of the tree in terms of, you know, when we're looking for companies and for people, employees, really enjoy humble clients. <laughs> but, uh, you know, like we're not Puritan around here either, Charlie, just to be clear, you know, that these, these things I'm talking of are aspirational and, you know, if we can just move the dial 1% every month, we you know, we'll just aspire to be better at what we do. Yeah, look, that's really interesting and I couldn't agree more. I think having a, an environment where we're all going to make mistakes in investing, it's a very hard job and, and the future doesn't always turn out the way I expected it, but, but to have a culture where you can be open to those mistakes and admit them to the team freely, I think uh, avoids anchoring two positions, which can be one of the worst mistakes in funds management. Just to follow up on, on your question, you, you know, how to, how to kind of transmit and transfer and train for humility. Some of it's genetic, I think, you know, like some of it's just naturally built into people. But we've worked very hard at trying to codify a lot of these these things. We have a CIY book, which is an internal book, not for public consumption. Maybe one day we'll do a second version that's public fit. But, you know, we've spent a lot of time around neuroscience. We've had a guy called Dr. Evian Gordon in here, he's a world-class neuroscientist based out of the US. I met him, he headed up the Westmead Brain Institute and was involved in a public company, really got to know Evian well. And so, I mean, he's a, a master of kind of understanding brain and how it transfers into decision-making under pressure, you know, under the kind of the authentic self and presenting it. So we've spent a lot of time with him trying to understand and instill some of that. In fact, this morning I um, took a couple of people down to see a guy called James Clear, the author of Atomic Habits, and really, you know, in terms of habitual change and setting up environments for sustained change, you need a kind of ritualised 
habits. So I was, you know, we, we do stuff like that. There's an acting studio here in Melbourne called 16th Street led by Kim Crages. Um, we've had Kim in a number of times in different roles working with people and, you know, it's not about the acting, it's about the authentic presentation of one's value proposition, being clear around that. And so we really try to mix it up a bit and get off pissed in terms of just being financial wallers. And I think that, you know, investing for us is both a qualitative and a quantitative um, system that we've got and really try to, you know, stimulate the environment around here to make it a safe place. And just finishing up on the humility point, you know, you've got to make it acceptable to make mistakes, acceptable to ask a stupid question and, and really kind of honour the naive follow-up question and so forth. And so spend a lot of time, you know, trying to make people engaged in that process. And I can tell you from days gone by previous to here, you know, I kind of one of the things I took away around culture, you know, I've worked in what are called piranha pool cultures, you know, survival of the fittest. And that certainly gets the genes fired up and probably was a good thing for me in, in some respects, but it also drives terrible behaviour in terms of internalisation of competitive dynamics, which end up harbouring and siloing information, you know, omission, destructive, toxic behaviours in some instances. So we really try to work hard at building open relationships so you can get information flowing, so you can have disagreements. So, you, you know, it's all about sort of getting to the better answer and insights and hearing information that may be relevant to an investment proposition. Mm, very interesting. And can maybe going back to that point um, you made earlier around the quantitative style of investing that you've kind of, I think, built in from the start. I mean, has that evolved over the years? And, you know, we're now seeing artificial intelligence everywhere and generative AI, you know, has your quant process changed over the years? I mean, the resources have changed. The, I guess the sophistication has changed. So in 2001, I had a, an A3 spreadsheet um, that I, I designed and data dump would come through once a week and I'd take it home on weekends and circle things. And that was evolved by a um, chap that turned my, uh, was actually a backpacker uh, you know, from England, was travelling through Melbourne, going back in 2002, turned that into a bunch of macros and then a little sort of database. Today we've got a lot more sophistication than that. The thing I'm very excited by Firstly, AI and data should be seen as a threat. Only the paranoid survive and, you know, one should not be complacent. And so I think there's, from my perspective, that's a, a really good stimulus to examine everything that we do. I would say the philosophy chart has not, not changed at all. You know, like a, over 25 years, the ideas of value and value latency, getting something for free is as strong today as it was back then. We've always been a qualitative, what we call a qualitative and quantitative shop. In fact, I'd say leading with qualitative information, I'm even more excited about, even though there's natural language readers and AI machinery can get to all sorts of places, including transcripts of CEOs and searching for keywords in, in what people say. For example, the word transition has got a pretty high correlation to risk. So whenever it hope this is not going out to your companies, by the way, but <laughs> any of these managers start talking about transition, I, I'd like to run 100 miles away from that. That's just like, that means there's a lot of disasters that need to be fixed up. So, you know, AI is, is amazing and what you can do with data is amazing, but I feel 
very confident and courage that the, the qualitative aspects, you know, finding networks, finding people at the coalface of industry who have just an advantage and a preferential seat at the table on an industry. And there's not always the same person. So we have to kind of work through the question as to well, who has got the best source of information. And this is why we are a qualitative manager. And I'd simplify this. What I mean by qualitative is, you know, around what it's called culture in organisations, leadership, entrepreneurship, solving problems and understanding risks through a qualitative lens. The other aspect of qualitative for us is simply reducing thousand line models down to three standard deviations around sales, margins and returns. You know, is it skew left or skew right, this number that everyone thinks that yeah, these guys are going to deliver a margin of 10.5%. The precision doesn't so much interest us. It's, you know, are we going to be above or below, trend up or trend out? That's the qualitative component. I mean, in terms of our research format here, you know, we talk about standardisation, integration, and then specialisation or optimization. And the data networks here have allowed us to really study ourselves whilst there's a lot of external you know, you can track 30,000 companies with the AI, you know, machines, so to speak. Our interest is really understanding what we're doing and eliminating mistakes, understanding errors. And that journey has been accelerating in the last year or two with, you know, more resources and better tools. Yeah, so look, it's a, you know, it's an exciting world. I think the opportunities for specialisation around some of the things that we do is really exciting that some of this data and AI stuff has allowed us to do. It will be very significant in terms of changing the industry, I feel. You know, technology and um, so there'll be a lot of activities that the industry or we do today that we won't be doing in five years' time and you know, there'll be new, new activities that it will allow us to do and that, that's the sort of progress of efficiency and productivity. Yeah, that's very interesting. And maybe now switching to your role at Hearts and Minds, you've been involved since the start and, in fact, I think you were the first fundy in that first year to pick a stock that went up 100% in the uh, conference portfolio, which is uh, pretty amazing. But uh, looking back, w- what was your impression of Hearts and Minds when you first came across it back in 2016? Well, I mean, funny story, I guess. Michael Walsh was one of the founding contributors to putting Hearts and Minds together, along with uh, Matthew Grounds and co, Gary Weiss. And so there's a very funny story that Michael loves to tell where he kind of mentioned it to me. I said, go away. I'm not interested in getting on stage at the Opera House, talking about stocks. And uh, anyway, Michael's down here. I was sort of walking up Collins Street. I had to jump on a tram. You know, he goes, I'll catch up with you later on. Michael chased me onto the tram and sort of chewed my ear for a couple of stops and finally convinced me that, you know, this was a great charity and a great philanthropic thing to do in an industry that probably could do a bit more in that space. And so from that perspective, I nervously accepted. And, you know, I think the idea has evolved with your and the management team's, I guess, oversight to the the capital raising of the Hearts and Minds Fund, which has turned the, the capital raising or the you know, the fundraising, if you like, into a perpetuity and a growth perpetuity, which is just truly fantastic. I think it's just an amazing example of business doing good. And, um, you know, it certainly has had a lot of influence on our, our thinking in terms of charitable exercises that are genuinely, you know, that overused word, sustainability and enduring qualities 
think that's um, you know really been fantastic and getting fund managers to chip in on that, doing pro bono work. It's very attractive for us. We've got a very strong philanthropic staff fund here and um, the hearts and minds component of that is you know taken very seriously by our staff and our team. And uh, yeah, we've loved being involved and you know, like all giving, you end up getting more back in, in many respects in terms of the quality people that we've kind of met in the, you know, in that scientific medical science area. Yeah, look, thank you very much. And look, I, I completely understand the pressure of getting up in front of 600 people, many of them your peers, to present something which has got to pay off over the next 12 months is not easy. Uh, so thank you. And I think we're letting you off the hook this year, but I'm sure we'll see you in future years. Turning to the medical research side of things, is there anything particular that's really touched you over the journey with Hearts and Minds? Yeah, I mean, in terms of things that we're involved in and have funded, there's a couple. There's the Professor Miles Prince at the Epworth Centre here that is doing incredible groundbreaking research into cancer and it's called TCUT. Don't ask me to explain exactly what that is, but it's really delivery systems that take the cancer cells without killing the rest of the body. And, you know, that's quite groundbreaking and world-renowned in terms of, you know, the cutting edge of what, what he's doing at the University of New South Wales. One of the, in fact, I think it's the largest psychology research department in the Southern Hemisphere. Joel Pearson's the researcher, head of that unit, and so he's involved in an intuition process study studying kids with intuitive powers and documenting that it's um, incredibly interesting and so we're really excited about some of the things that he's doing there and developing and codifying some of that work which we hope you know if if successful in terms of his studies and trials you know will be taken into the education system you know as a sort of a, a learning modality that's not really mainstream at the moment but you know has just enormous potential there's a organisation here called Turning Point where we're doing a study around or funding a study around heart rate variability and addiction. And as you probably know, addiction is just a huge issue. And it's not only for the addiction population, but, you know, the study is going to be kicked off with Turning Point, which is a very well-resourced research organisation looking into you know, remedies and study of, of addiction. So uh, that kicks off later this, this year. So I really love, love particularly, you know, me personally, particularly love the work around human behaviour, you know, some of these mental health areas, which are, you know, really debilitating and cause so much suffering, not only for the people involved, but, you know, families and extended communities. You know, the format of Hearts and Minds um, each year, you know, get on stage and pitch a stock is actually quite different than our core processes, if you like, where, you know, we like concentration, Charlie, but Portfolio One is not not our idea of uh, a well-constructed portfolio. And, of course, the Hearts and Minds, you guys at home office there do that, you know, in terms of building out the portfolio, but we're kind of on the hook for the one stock. So that is one attribute that's different than, you know, the the core sort of portfolio construction skills and techniques that we would use here to build our client portfolios. 
I guess one of the differences as well, other than the diversification of risks around different factors, is the timing aspect of it. And so the pinpoint accuracy required, you know, day of pitch and then 12 months later, you kind of measure the, the outcome, is really subjected to not only stock-specific factors, but, you know, a multitude of currency and industry and, and, and country and political top-down risks, which often sit outside our ability to control. So that's really the, the main difference. And we like concentrated and very sort of stock-focused portfolios. I think the, um, I guess the difference is that ability to kind of offset risks in portfolio with other securities and to build out a, a enduring vehicle to withstand all weather conditions. Yeah, look, I think the way it's now structured with a third of the portfolio with these interesting sort of 12-month catalyst stocks, but also the two-thirds, which you are involved with, the seven core managers that manage on a much longer-term basis. And and I think um, we obviously now share the whole portfolio with you uh, when we come and chat to you so you can see what else is in the fund. And, And I think it does suit someone like yourself to come up with those three picks as a core manager. And, and often those picks may well be in the fund for two, three, four, five years. I think as a portfolio manager of the past that the combination of all of it actually fits together quite nicely and you're left with a you know, reasonably esoteric and unusual fund, but one that perhaps sits well uh, within a blend of funds in Australia. Maybe we could delve into one of the stocks that you, you currently have as, as a core manager, which is Brookfield. And I think the name will be familiar to people. Certainly, I think I came across it first in, I think, 2007 when they bought Multiplex here just before the GFC. But it's now a, a sprawling global behemoth and you see their name mentioned across a whole variety of sectors. Maybe you could just give us a, a brief summary of exactly um, what makes up their sort of profits. Brookfields is, um, if you kind of thread back through the history, it goes back 100 years. So it's a deep, deeply, I guess, evolved organisation. It's a holding company. Brookfields, and then they have a multitude of listed companies which they would have controlling stakes in. Uh, But it's it's first and foremost a capital allocating investment holding company and has some analogies just to sort of give people in Australia a familiarity with other comparator companies. It has elements of Macquarie Bank. It has elements of a, you know, Washington Sol Patterson's or if you go all the way to a Berkshire Hathaway they have over 200,000 employees in the subsidiary organisations. Um, but first and foremost, they're value investors is how we would sort of describe them. And it's not a, and the reason I say it's a kind of a holding company, it's very industrial. One of the things we love about it, they combine capital allocation, investment and finance with operatorship. These guys came out of an operating background, not a finance or a kind of an investment background. And so that DNA just sits so well with us and, you know, really speaks to our idea of, um, I guess, investment where, you know, you can sort of see where operationally and the expertise and the management can add value to the underlying businesses or the underlying assets. So from that perspective, Brookfields have an incredibly good track record and an opportunity. First of all, they're an asset manager and I think it's about $550 billion of assets that they would have under their control that would include some direct ownership. And so they generate 
fee income off that. Um, then they, they have, a, I guess, a series of listed company investments, in, including the asset manager where they own 75% of it in the uh, infrastructure space, private equity space and some property. And then they have these private assets, which are more on balance sheet. That would be private credit, distressed debt. They bought Howard, people familiar with Howard Marks and Oak Tree. They bought that four or five years ago. They kind of running $150 billion worth of private credit and distressed loans. And by the way, that's one of the opportunities we're very excited by. I think, you know, my career, Charlie, could be described by a tailwind since, you know, 1987 till a couple of years ago, where you had just one thing after another as a tailwind, I think combining of operatorship, private equity skills and distressed debt skills has got a 10 to 20 year runway. As we kind of normalise back, back uh, I mean, our beliefs here would be that, you know, inflation up, down, all that sort of talk is going to take a long time to kind of for the world to, I guess, get back to somewhat of a normal state. But those skills will be so valuable in the opportunities around restructuring, repurposing and uh, reorientating many assets, property, private equity skills, etc. So they've also got an insurance business, which they only started a couple of years ago, and um, that's up to generating profits of around $700 million. The NAV of this company is, or Brookfield's around $80 billion. We think today's prices you're paying about $53 billion. So it's 35% undervalued. In addition, these guys are creating new opportunities all the time. Another big thing we love about it, they've got three things that I love. They're very valued. They're these guys, you know, have been involved in all sorts of vulture activity. When downturns come, this team is very, very skilled with a terrific track record of presenting opportunity because they've got reputation, skills, balance sheet, liquidity and structure and global scale to sort of pounce on opportunities. One area, you know, just as an example, they have a quite a big asset base in, in utilities and about 12, 18 months ago they created a transition fund. Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of England, is the chair of this fund and they raised $15 billion and that's $22 billion Australian dollars they raised, okay? And so that is just no mean feat and the cheques were written, you know, $5 billion, $10 billion checks coming in from sovereign wealth funds across the globe. I think they have roughly 200 institutional investors, some of which were the funders of that transition fund. And, you know, they're a very what you call responsible, sensitive to ESG and leaning into the business solving global problems. That is something they've got a lot of capability around mission critical infrastructure. And to give you an example, they've got a bit on the table subject to ACCC uh, approval for origin. And, you know, it's roughly a 20, 18, $20 billion acquisition partially funded by this fund that they raised. Now, you know, Origin arguably is a dirty industry, a carbon generating industry, but the proposition for them, you buy a relatively cheap asset, six, seven times EBITDA multiple, add technology and funding and structuring skills, and they're going to transform probably Australia's largest energy producer. And a lot of the risk is also taken by investors and Brookfield sit over the top there as a you know, as a manager, operator and partial investor in 
some of these opportunities. So they're going around the world looking for cheap, dirty industry companies that, that can be converted to become modern, lower carbon footprint. So everyone's a winner. The, the other thing on the origin one, you might note the New South Wales has, has done the Victorian government care of the taxpayers are actually going to be paying origin to keep the lights on and the power flowing out of airing, which is a big New South Wales generator. So that was somewhat of a free kick should they be uh, successful in an extra couple of years, three, four years of extra cash flows that have been underwritten by taxpayers of New South Wales. So they're incredibly good company. Bruce Flat, the CEO who uh, comes through Australia quite regularly, is incredibly long-term focused individual and talking, you know, they had some office towers which haven't gone so well in the portfolio, but they're really well positioned. In the, they're in AAA-rated trophy assets, retail, industrial. Um, they're doing, you know, big data centres or um, semiconductor manufacturing centres. They've signed a big contract with uh, Intel, the uh, semiconductor company, and, you know, with all the stresses that you see coming through because of inflation and interest rates and liquidity and credit tightening and so forth, these guys are fantastically positioned or some of their portfolio will be affected by that, no doubt. They're fantastically positioned to avail themselves of the opportunities that come out of those repositionings and restructurings because of the tightness in, in credit markets. Wow, it sounds like a fascinating business and quite hard to analyse. Uh, just listening to you there, there's a, there's a lot of moving parts. I mean, is that the reason for the discount or why is that discount opened up? I think that's the discount I've put down to the credit pressures that we're, we're going through pressures in property, I think that's offset in our minds in a, in a medium-term sense because of the opportunities and the evolution, that the ability of these guys to continue to invest in new opportunities. I mentioned a couple of them, but the main one would be, the, I, I guess, the fact that you are across a number of different asset classes, um, you know, fixed interest, private lending, property, infrastructure, insurance. So, there's definitely a lot to understand for the people who want to get down, but the way they've structured them, um, it would be no different than Macquarie Bank. I mean, Macquarie across that level, as is Berkshire Hathaway. So um, the, these companies, we love these discounts. I mean, we don't invest in the discount as such. Just the discount is just going to assume that it closes up. We're looking at the underlying growth in the NAV. That, that's our big, we want growth in that NAV, not just relying upon a discount closing up. You know, they're very value-focused people, big share ownership at the senior executive level. They buy back securities for discounts, good track record, get their own securities. So, you know, I think that that will be the opportunity for the stock over time. Great, great. And just to finish up, and thank you for your time again today, Peter, but um, we're asking all of our participants, both investors and scientists, just what is interesting you out there in the world at the moment? And it can be anything from a, a life hack to an investment idea, but what is piquing your curiosity right now? Well, certainly the distressed debt thing. You know, like I often think of this question in a long-term sense, you know, like the, you know, the tailwinds that we've had 10, 20 plus years. So identifying or asking the question, well, that was great for the last 20, 30 years. What's the new kind of party trick or, or framing here? For me, it very much lies around 
the changing demographics, which has been around for a long time, but we're right in the eye of the storm now. You know, you've got negative growth in most of Western Europe, many Asian countries, Japan, Korea, China, having really huge demographic changes go on. So, you know, you throw in there, you know, the kind of the housing and affordability issue, um, not just in Australia, but certainly in the US and uh, parts of the UK and Europe, same factors apply. So looking for businesses that are beneficiaries of that, and, you know, examples in, in, in Australia, there are quite a few what are called affordable, you know, really, really good affordable housing. Sadly, the government hasn't thought to go and speak to these companies and actually partner properly with commerce. But there are, you know, a number of very, very good affordable housing manufacturers who are invested in a, in a couple of them that are just so efficient, productive, not only about putting housing on efficient blocks of land, creating central services, but the thing I really love about these sort of companies, and I think it's a factor of companies that can create community value. It's not a financial concept. It's a managerial organisational concept in creating communities where you actually get sort of thought going into design and management that are, you know, really makes for binding, well-functioning communities. And so there's a company here called Lifestyle Communities, public company, but there are a number of others operating on the outskirts of big cities like Melbourne. Unfortunately, that would be minuscule number of housing units required, but, you know, they're, they're doing their bit. Productivity is really at an extreme low in, in many Western countries, uh, falling population in places like, uh, you know, Japan and so forth, putting a lot of emphasis. Charlie, I was at a Japanese restaurant in uh, Melbourne, in Melbourne here, and my um, sushi and miso soup were delivered by a robot. <laughs> First time I ever saw that, <laughs> this thing sort of on wheels turns up next to the table. Wow. In LA, where I was just recently, you know, the driverless car, goods deliveries, you know, on these electronic robots going down pathways and streets in LA is quite common now. Uh, not, not arrived in Australia yet. We haven't had the drone drop yet, but that, that's all, all coming. So, you know, what we look for is, I guess, finding the, you know, the infrastructure or the, the service providers behind these, not so much interested in the manufacturers of the robots but, you know, finding industries where we can get exposure. Certainly in the AI data thing that we talked about initially, I mean, so many companies now using those, I guess, uh, you know, networks and, and facilities providing that to embed that into their own businesses. So, optimi- you know, tracking companies, being able to optimise better delivery systems. Um, banks now, you know, I was reading in the Amazon third quarter result, thinking about sort of thematics and trends in industry, but, you know, putting in cloud-based services of which Amazon has over 200 services in that iCloud business of theirs, AWS, putting it into banks where they drop out 20% of the costs, for example, that's where, you know, you can make really good money just through that productivity lens. Fantastic. Well, look, thank you very much for your time today, Peter. It was really interesting hearing all your thoughts on a wide range of subjects. And and thank you again for your involvement in Hearts and Minds since the very start. Thank you. Keep up your good work, Charlie and Maggie. And it's uh, been great to be part of. And yeah, look forward to catching up. What an incredible conversation. Thank you to Peter for joining us today and so generously sharing his insights, thinking and experiences. 
As you've heard today, Peter has been a founding supporter of Hearts and Minds and a massive advocate of our model and our philanthropic purpose. It was fantastic to hear how he approaches not only investing, but his overarching life principles as well. Thank you, Peter, for your time and to the entire team at Cooper Investors for all your work and commitment in supporting Hearts and Minds. To ensure you never miss a conversation, please subscribe wherever you're listening to this right now. And better yet, send it on to someone in your network you think will enjoy the discussion. Your support is really appreciated. Until next time, stay curious. This is a Hearts and Minds podcast in partnership with Equitymates Media. This communication has been prepared by Hearts and Minds Investment Limited, ABN 61 628 753220. In preparing this publication, the investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of an individual have not been considered. You should not rely on the opinions, advice, recommendations, and other information contained in this publication alone. The inclusion of third-party content does not in any way imply any form of endorsement by HM1 of the products or services provided by persons or organizations who are responsible for the third-party content. This publication has been prepared to provide you with general information only. It is not intended to take the place of professional advice and you should not take action on specific issues in reliance on this information. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance.